Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Right, we're going to do engaging with culture now, so look at the other notes. Can you cope with that? It's all right, I've been teaching engaging with culture all the way through, actually. Have you noticed? So. You all ready to start? Can you cope without a break? We'll give you a break in a minute. Well, in a few minutes. All right. I love the different cultures. I don't feel threatened by different cultures. I love to learn different cultures. I think cross-cultural work is one of the most exciting things anyone can be involved with. I love to respect other cultures. Don't expect everyone to to accept my culture, even if they live in the country that I was born in. Hallelujah. I love your cultures if you're from somewhere else. So, let's talk about culture. A few years ago, this was told to me by a story by a pastor in an Asian church in my hometown. A visitor from India came to preach in this Asian church in Bedford, where I live. For some reason, I can't work out quite why, he was put to live for the night before he preached at the Asian church, church I've preached in quite often, Punjabi speaking. And he was told, he was lived with a white English family. When he arrived, they said, would you like anything? Would you like a meal? He arrived in the evening. He said, no, thank you. Would you like something to drink? No, thank you. Oh, they thought. He must have just come from a plane. He probably wants to just get some sleep. Morning, he wakes up. Would you like some breakfast? No, thank you. <laughs> Very traditional English household, and so 11 o'clock. I said, would you like some coffee? No, thank you. So lunchtime. By this time, they'd begun to, as they thought, got the message. Perhaps he was fasting because he was about to preach. They're more spiritual Christians from India than we are. So they... So so when it came to lunchtime, would you like something to eat? You want some lunch? No, thank you. Okay, would you like a cup of tea before we go to preach? No, thank you. Okay. So he went to the meeting, and the first thing he said to my friend who's the pastor of that church was, how do you ever get anything to eat or drink in this country? What's happened? Okay. I've taught this in places, and all sorts of lights have gone in, and some guests, or people from other cultures, I 
sorted in Russia once and someone from one of the eastern countries that used to be occupied by the Soviet Union said to me, wow, that's what I feel coming to Russia when I first came. Why? Because in many cultures, you want to know that people really want to give you some food. And so you need to say at least three times, please, really? Because they want you to really know. You understand? And did you know that was in the Bible? Because the Bible's an Eastern book. It's not Western. The trouble is, Westerns often misread the Bible. I'll just say that to those of you not from the West. Westerners are often misreading it because they don't get the culture. You get it more. So, when Jesus was walking to Emmaus, do you remember that story? They got to the house, it said. Because they still didn't know who he was, but they got to the house and they said, please come in and have a meal and stay with us. It says, Jesus made to go further. Now they had to press him to come in. That's the way in the East. You don't presume upon the relationship to start with. Understand? I, this isn't one of my stories, but this is a story that I read in a book. But there was on an aeroplane and there was three people. So three young women sitting together. One side was a Lebanese young woman. Then there was a missionary, well, a girl whose parents were missionaries who'd been brought up in Lebanon. And then there was an American. They were all friends on some mission trip. And so the American said to the girl growing up in Lebanon, what was it like growing up in the Middle East? And she felt a bit embarrassed because there was a Lebanese girl sitting next to her, but she said, and she gave an illustration like I've just given you about not saying yes straight away, that presumes too much on the relationship. And the Lebanese girl said, I never knew that. She said, what do you mean? You were brought up, you were your Lebanese. She said, no, no, I didn't know. The rest of the world didn't think like that. <laughs> she says, why? I've been so lonely in America. She said, when I first went to my office, people said, why don't you come out for lunch with us? She said, I didn't want to presume upon the relationship, so I said, no, thank you. And they stopped asking me. She said, I felt so alone. I never understood that in the West, you, if someone invites you, you say yes. I want to know they really want me to come to lunch. One of our conferences in the Middle East, we had a young Moroccan man converting one of the churches. I asked him to speak. Um, 
he spoke for 40 minutes on how to greet. <laughs> and the mistakes Westerners make in his country. He said, Westerners say things like, oh, come round for a meal sometime. But they're just saying it, they don't mean it. Because no invitation follows. They're just saying, it's just things Westerners say, like, how are you? They don't want to know how you are. <laughs> if you told them, they'd be shocked. <laughs> but they say these things, because they're Westerners. He said, and he went through it. He talked about greetings in the Bible. The Bible's full of greetings. You know? If I was going to a meeting in the East and I got my meeting at 11 o'clock, I was walking there at 10 to 11 and I met someone I've not seen for 30 years. Ah, <gasps> greet them. Spend a long time. How's your father? That's where you start. How's your mother? How's your brother? And we go on. When you've really both finished going through all that with each other, you're 40 minutes late for the meeting. <laughs> so it's perfectly acceptable to say, I'm sorry. I met someone I had not seen for 30 years. And that would be perfectly understood. Whereas in the UK, if you saw someone you hadn't seen for 30 years and you got an appointment at 11 o'clock, you'd say, oh, I'd love to see you again. I'm sorry. I'll give you a ring. I've got a meeting in five minutes' time. That would be perfectly acceptable. But when the two cultures come together, people don't get it. Understand? As an African once said, you have the watches, we have the time. Okay? <laughs> so, I was once on a Pacific island, this was when I was a banker. I did the first loan for this group of islands they ever had in their history. That's my claim to fame. And, uh, I was negotiating this loan. And next to my hotel was a church. I thought, I'll go there on Sunday. And I, so on Sunday morning, there was nothing outside the church to say when it started or anything. So I went there to the church on Sunday morning. I just made a guess. Went around 9.30, you know. No one there. And then I saw a guy outside. I said, what time does the service start? He looked at me weirdly. And so I, I said, do you speak English? He said, yes, I speak English. I said, oh, good. Said, what time did the service start? So he looked at me as you talk to an idiot. I said, when the people get there, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course! <laughs> 
I like teaching this in a multicultural environment because <laughs> there's a few people that understand what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> so, there was a post office in a particular country I go to. So there wasn't a post office. There was a, a Westerner travelling in a particular country and wanted to go to the post office. So he got to this town and he asked someone, could you direct me to the post office, please? So we go up there, and then you turn right, then you turn left, then you ask again. Okay. So he did that. Asked again. So we go right down there, turn second left, and when he got there, no post office. In the end, he found out. There was no post office in that town at all. Okay. But they didn't want to offend him by telling him that. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted a post office. <laughs> Want to keep him happy. Don't want him to be disappointed, do we? Okay. You ever heard of personal space? Westerners often say, I need some personal space. Easterners. What? What do you want that for? We're together. It was so unusual to have personal space, Jesus had to go up a mountain <laughs> when he wanted to pray. People often say, yeah, Western, uh, Eastern homes, like when Jesus was preaching and a woman from the village came and let down her hair and wash his feet with it and all that. Well, of course. Yeah. In a Western home, that wouldn't happen because the door would be locked. <laughs> the Eastern homes, the table's in the courtyard. Anyone can come and watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're much more biblical. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they're having an important... <laughs> yeah. Often Westerners teach on house churches. <coughs> I taught in a house church in Pakistan with 180 people in it. Because they have courtyards. In the New Testament, they had big upper rooms. 120 in them. Get it? So... It's, you, sadly, there's never been any breakthrough in Palestinian-Israeli relationships. I got caught in the middle of it once, the only time I've been tear gassed when I was in Bethlehem when the riot started. But the, uh, there was one time when they almost got breakthrough. That was when a guy called Jimmy Carter, who, evangelical, who wasn't evangelical, but evangelicals don't generally like him because he wasn't right-wing. And so <laughs> he was 
president and he understood culture. I, at the time, was serving on UN committees on the debt problems of developing countries when Jimmy Carter was president. And it was one time when the whole developing world thought America was a good thing. Because that Jimmy Carter, he understood people. Americans threw him out after one term. But <laughs> he gathered, Menachem Begin, the Jewish leader, and uh, Israeli leader, and uh, Yasser Arafat, who led the Palestinians. This is going back in ancient history for some of you. And uh, they had the Camp David Agreement, where bringing these two arch enemies together, Jimmy Carter was able to make some progress. After a few days of the negotiations, the press were clamouring to know, because you know they do, how's it going? Have you got a breakthrough yet? So Jimmy Carter came out and addressed the press, and they said, Mr. President, have you got any results yet? He said, yes, we've made tremendous progress. Wow, what's that? He said, we all know the names of all of each other's grandchildren. <laughs> he under, President Carter understood. In the East, you build relationships before you do business. Sometimes people get, companies get invited over to China for, they've been sending lots of messages to try and sell their goods and they get no reply, no reply, no reply, no reply, or just, then they get invited over for a weekend. They go for a weekend's business and they never talk about business the whole time. And they get frustrated and angry. Come on, we're here to talk business. They don't show that if they're sensible. Then they come to the end and go home again. What was all that about? And they get an email giving them the order. We needed to know you before we do business with you. Do you understand? This is culture. What have I been doing so far to teach you about culture? Stories. Stories. Welcome to how 70% of the world learns. We'll talk about that later. Most cultures learn, and even most people in Western culture, learn through stories rather than through concepts and principles. We'll talk about that later. I once had a day on culture with some trainee pastors in the UK. I did the first session, much longer than this, just telling stories. At the end of it, I said, well, I've finished the session. One guy got angry with me. And he said, when are you going to start teaching us? <laughs> I said to the rest of the group, who's learned something this morning? He, he needed to fill his notebooks with concepts. That's not how most people learn. So I'll tell stories. I'll do some principles, because some of you like that. But I'm teaching you about culture. Right. So I've 
been asked to teach on culture in all sorts of settings. In one place in Turkey, we have a church that at that time, it's now almost entirely Turkish, but at that time it was about 50% Turkish, 50% Westerners, because it was a place where Westerners liked to live because of the seaside and things. And uh, yeah, all the missionaries wanted to base themselves there. <laughs> and uh, got, got a nice, cult, nice climate. And so, uh, so a lot of them came to that church for their Sunday meetings. So it was 50-50. So it's now probably 80% Turkish. But uh, some Turkish people said to me, David, we hear you teach on culture a lot. I said, yes. I said, Could you teach the Turks in the church how to relate to these very strange people that live amongst us, Westerners? Teach them about that. So I did a session for... Turkish people on how to relate to Westerners and because uh, that's a mystery to most of the world and uh, so I, I, what story can I told you the story about the asking three times before you get some food I said what story can I tell to shock them and I thought oh. so I said I started the story. In our culture, parents put their children to bed a number of hours before they go to bed themselves. Stunned unbelief all through the room. <laughs> and, I, and so someone said, someone, they started asking questions straight away. They said, if you don't know when you're going to bed, because you may get some guests around, how do you work out, if the children go to bed a certain number of hours before you do, how do you work out what time they go to bed when you don't know what time you're going to go to bed yourselves? <laughs> that was the first question. Then someone said, oh, well, I can't remember all the questions, but lots of them. Then one person looked at me very worried. I still see her face, I know her. And she said, don't English people like their children? For <laughs> 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 most of the world, children go to bed when their parents go to bed. <laughs> yeah, my sister, my cousin came here when I had my son who is going to be 18. So she visited, she came to stay with us. So I put Michael to bed. She was like, Are you sure not <laughs> <laughs> Something that played me, she was shocked. She was like, So you just came in there and you come downstairs. She couldn't believe it. <laughs> but it's something that's yeah. in it. Yeah, I've been to Western Christian meetings where it's been taught yeah. that putting your children to bed early yeah. is a biblical value almost. No, it's a cultural value. Nothing wrong with it. Just for the, I always have to say this for Western parents. It's okay to put your children to bed at a certain time. It's your culture. But don't teach it as if it's a multicultural thing. It's not. In fact, you're in the minority in the world.
coffee break. Then I'll teach you properly with some principles. Okay. Just chatting with people over the coffee break, you know, there's lots of things you have to learn. In the West, you honour people by inviting them to your home. In the East, you honour people by going to their home. And when you're in multicultural churches, you have to remember that. You know, Scylla, my wife, gets very embarrassed. We keep getting invited to these homes and so we haven't been able to get and invite them back, which is an essential part of English culture. I said, no, no, you're honouring them by going there. And often, and we found that with, not just with Christians in our church, but when we're reaching out to, say, Muslim neighbours, we've built some friendship with some a few years ago, and... We could never get them back to our home when Scylla was always there. I said, don't worry, you're honouring them all. And also they'll be slightly suspicious. They think we might not serve halal meat and that sort of thing. Well, we would, of course, in their case. We make sure we got it from an appropriate place. You know, because res I respect cultures when we're serving them. Paul became a slave to all cultures, he said. So, so we do, that's how I do it. Um, so, anyway, I just need to remember that. Uh, also, in terms of, and this is important in terms of recognising leadership and so on, which I'll come on to in a moment, but there was once a, a, a meeting and it was mainly Kenyans and Americans who were doing a sort of thing together project. And they made some proposals. And all the Americans in the room talked about a certain thing. Because America is a very individualistic culture. So everyone has to have their say. And then only one Kenyan spoke. And so the chairman said, OK, well, obviously the majority is. And that was the American view because they'd all expressed it. He was wrong. The majority was the opposite. But the Kenyans didn't feel they needed to say it because it had been said by someone on their behalf. Just that? Okay. Remember another thing in Turkey, there was an evangelistic church plant and doing some evangelism and they had a house meeting and one dear Turkish older man wouldn't stop talking, you know? And so it was very hard for any of the others to get anything, any questions in. So this young missionary, who was not very experienced, said, what on earth do I do? And then in the end, he said, I have to confront this because I can't talk to the other people because this guy is talking all the time. So he asked him to be quiet and so on. The guy got ever so offended. And when you get offended in some cultures, that's it. So what do we do? Because he's caused offence. So he sent an experienced missionary, an older man, round to talk to this older man in Turkey. And he said, and tried to find, what's the problem? And the Turkish, he said, you know, if you are speaking too much, it, you do need to address that. I said, that's no problem. I, I realise I speak too much. I'm, 
happy with that, but he didn't say Arby. What's that? Whenever you're in Turkey, you're addressing an older man than yourself, you always say their name and then Arby, which shows I respect you because you're older. If it's a woman, Abla. I respect you because you're older than me. So he wasn't offended by being told he shouldn't stop, couldn't talk so much. The guy showed no respect. Because in his enthusiasm to get it over, he didn't address him as Arby. My friend Andrew Wilson now, every time he meets me, because, ah, David Arby. <laughs> okay, so, because he heard me tell that story once. And now tells it everywhere he goes. But the, okay. So what is culture? Includes how we traditionally behave. Family traditions, dress, arts, taboos, what practices are acceptable and unacceptable. Now sometimes the gospel does break taboos, like when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. But you have to know when and how. So I was talking to a young pastor once in England. He's, he was doing English as a foreign language classes in his church too. And lots of Muslim women were coming along. And he said, we're going to use Bible stories as well to teach them. I said, that's a good idea. He said, we're going to start with the story of the woman in the well because we know that will undermine their culture. I said, don't you dare. What do you mean? I said, no, no. You tell stories which their culture can relate to mm -hmm. and gain trust before you tell stories that rightly undermine their culture. Because for Jesus to talk to a woman on his own, if you just tell that to a woman, and this has happened. Oh, that's a wicked man. He's just sitting talking to a woman. See? Now, you do have to do that, because it's not right to not honour women. But you work round to it by gaining trust. Okay, so taboos, that's what taboos are. What's relationships, how relationships are organized and how society is organised. Charles Craft, the missiologist, said... The relationship between culture and human beings is similar to the relationship between water and fish. You are inextricably in your culture. From the moment you are born, you are taught culture. And you don't know you've got it until you meet someone from a different culture. And often you get offended because they aren't doing it right. No, it's not a question of right or wrong. It's your culture. As a young woman working in the East said to me, she's from South London and a very strong accent, yeah. She said, David, until I came here, I didn't even know I had a culture. <laughs> No, 
because because you're it's like you're like a fish to water. It's what you, what you are. One quote here. I'll give you some good teaching now. Culture can be defined as the way of life of a particular society, including its patterns of thought, beliefs, behaviour, customs, traditions, rituals, dress, language. You, language expresses culture. And sometimes you can't fully understand culture unless you know something of the language. Art, music and literature. These particular systems of beliefs and practices are based on the assumptions people make about themselves, about the world around them and about ultimate realities. Cultures involve the worldviews, social structures and institutions that give meaning to life. Cultures provide people with the means of expressing their deepest feelings formulated in ways understood and accepted by those around them. Feelings are very, very hard to convey cross-culturally. If I'm in my own culture, I can largely tell how people are feeling. Cross-culturally, that's very, very difficult. And you have to learn the expressions of culture that demonstrate feelings and go along with that. I once went to India, and I hadn't been there for ten years because I'd been focusing on all the parts of the world. And uh, there was a pastor there, lovely guy, preached in his church, and he came up to me after the first meeting, and he said, David, I've not seen you for ten years. Please have lunch with me. So I said, okay, yeah, I'll have lunch with you. We were on the fourth floor of a big building. Lunch was served down the four floors, across the courtyard, and into the lunchroom. So I said, David, and he took my hand. <laughs> and we walked hand in hand to the back of the church, <laughs> down all four floors, across the courtyard in front of everybody, <laughs> holding hands. <laughs> now, as a Westerner, everything within me Wanted to pull my hand away. <laughs> but I knew if I showed the slightest reluctance, I would offend him. Because that's the way his feelings of not having seen me for 10 years was being expressed. You understand? Some places I go to, it's okay for men to walk hand in hand, but not with your wife. You mustn't, you know, I mustn't hold hands with Scylla, but I could hold hands with a bloke and walk along with him. <laughs> okay. Now, this from Tim Keller is brilliant. Every human culture is an extremely complex mixture of brilliant truth, marred half-truths, and over-resistance to the truth. That's every culture, including ours. 
Every culture will have some idolatrous discourse within it. And yet every culture will have some witness to God's truth in it. God gives out good gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty and skill completely without regard for merit. He casts them across a culture like seed in order to enrich, brighten and preserve the world. I love that. All the wonderful things in the cultures of this world are given by God. The literature. You know, you, I didn't know, but when I was in my early 20s, for some reason I decided to make my reading Russian classical literature. In English. And I thought, well, I, 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 I every book I'm reading is a Russian classic. Why? And 30 years later, we're living in Russia. You understand? I understand. Because the beauty of their literature taught me about the culture. Okay? They're some of the most creative people I've ever come across. Some churches you go to, you think, if I'm not a top musician, I can't really be in this church. You know, it's just wonderful. Because the arts is how people who've been oppressed for generations can express themselves. You understand? You... Culture. Because every culture has this wonderful thing from God in it. Without this understanding of culture, Christians will tend to think they can live self-sufficiently, isolated from and unblessed by the contribution of those in the world. Oh. In today's secular society, there's great things in our culture. Even though it's more against our beliefs, a lot of the worldview, nevertheless, a lot of the things in the culture are wonderful. Without an appreciation of God's gracious display of his wisdom in the broader culture, Christians may struggle to understand why non-Christians often exceed Christians in moral practice, wisdom and skill. The doctrine of sin means that as believers we are never good as our right worldview should make us. At the same time, the doctrine of our creation image of God and our understanding of, human, of common grace remind us that non-believers were never as flawed as their false, false worldview should make them. Important. And also, cultural diversity, this is Wall's missiology and historian cultural diversity was built into the christian faith in acts 15 which declared the new gentile christians didn't have to enter jewish culture the converts had to work out a hellenistic that's a greek way of being a christian so no one owns the christian faith there's no christian culture the way there is an islamic culture which you can recognize from pakistan to tunisia and morocco do you understand i don't like the expression christian culture I hear people use it, I don't believe it. Or kingdom culture, that's how some of them put it. 
No. These godly principles worked out in lots of different cultures. So the way I'm godly in one culture will have a different expression from how I am in another. The way I do things. On three occasions, I've had the compliments that have most blessed me. Okay? Now, people often say, I enjoyed your teaching. One time I was in Russia, and this Russian guy came up to me, put his arms around me, a big, big bear hug, and said, David, after I preached, David, you're not English. I said, what do you mean? You're Russian born in the wrong place. <laughs> then, once I was in Africa, and I just preached, and someone, an African, who was from the UK and heard me preach in the UK, came with me and he said, David, you preach like an African here. So of course I'm in Africa. And then at another conference, the guy who was hosting the session one of, our, one of our conferences in the East. The guy who was hosting the session was an Arab from Iraq, I think. And he was hosting it. And he said, in my church, when I heard that um, this English guy was coming to preach, I thought, oh, it would be a bit dull. And then he said, David came. I said, he preaches like an Arab. Amen. So, there's three basic forms of culture in the world, and we need to understand this. Now, there's degrees in all of them, and there's overlap and all the rest of it, so this is not a fixed rule. Law guilt culture, which traditionally Western culture has been. So you have laws. If you break them, you're guilty. Okay? Then in the East, it's largely shame honour cultures. So if the way you keep order in that culture, just like you have laws in the West, you have shame and honour in the East. So what matters is not whether you've broken a law exactly, but whether you've shamed, and not yourself particularly, but your family and the community. So it's a collective way of thinking. And most, uh, yeah, a lot of the Bible is written in a shame-honour context, and we need to understand that. And, and what's good is that you bring honour to your community. Then, some cultures and some uh, African cultures like this, I'm not going to generalise too much because Africa is not, not an African culture, there's hundreds of them, uh, but, which is anxiety security, which is, you keep all of us, if you do something wrong, something will get you. Okay? So what you're looking for is Security. Okay. In the fall, in Genesis, you get all three. What have you done? 
did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? That's law guilt. They covered themselves in fig leaves. That's honour shame. And then God clothed their shame with skin. And they are promised the snake, the serpent, the devil will be overcome and defeated. That's anxiety security. So in the fall, there were all those things. In the atonement, there are all those things. So for a Westerner, the fact that Jesus bore my sin, was punished for my sin, gets the biggest hallelujah. I'm now not guilty. For the Easterner, the fact that Jesus endured the shame of the cross, hanging naked and being mocked. But in order to to fulfill his father's honour. Because God had promised that all the nations would be blessed with the seed of Abraham. Jesus honoured his father by going to die to make his promise come true. I read a book about a Chinese scholar who wrote his doctoral thesis I read called The The Truth of the Atonement, Saving God's Face. (laughs) Do you see? Shame. And for those who are in anxiety security, the fact that the devil was defeated in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So anxiety, so we're now safe from the wiles of the devil. You understand? Our worship in multicultural churches should reflect all three themes. Not just my sins are gone, but Satan lower, you know? Jesus higher. (laughs) And (laughs) honour. My shame was not only was gone on the cross as well. And our worship must reflect those things. Okay. Then you've got what's called, which is largely true, hot climate and cold climate cultures. Hot climate... So it's largely the warmer parts of the world. Russia is an exception because it's a hot climate culture, but it's pretty cold. But (laughs) is relationship... That's hold on. Every culture believes getting the job done and having good relationships is good. So it's not a question of Western culture doesn't value relationships. It does value relationships. But the task, getting something done, is more... The priority is efficiency is more important than relationship. In Eastern culture, relationship, and in African culture, relationship is more important. Yes? And so we need to 
We all want to do both, but we just need to know that, and I told stories about that. Okay. So... Then you've got high-context cultures and low-context cultures. I was in Pakistan once, and I, was, I used to stay in their homes, but the security situation is such that I have to stay where there can be an armed guard in a hotel now. I have an armed guard with me where I go, and guarding the meetings and so on. And so I was in my hotel waiting for... And the pastor came to pick me up for a meeting which was gathering all, their ch all the churches in that area of Pakistan together. And as I was sitting in the lobby, I was dressed smart, casual. I wouldn't ever, in those cultures, dress in jeans. But I was smart, cult, casual, which was okay. And... Uh, He said, David, would you give out the certificates tonight? I said, what certificates? He said, well, we've decided all those that have served well in the churches this year, we're going to give them a certificate of good Christian service. Now, in the UK, we just say, give them a clap, you know, <laughs> if we remembered at the end of the service. <laughs> Pardon? We've done in our heads already, yeah. So I said, I'd love to give out the certificates, but please excuse me for five minutes. So I went back to my office, not back to my office, back to my hotel room, and put on a suit and tie which I'd brought in case I went to a high context event. Because I always carry, to countries like that, I always take a suit and tie with me. Because I never know when I might need it. Because you haven't a clue what you're going to do before you arrive. I mean, everything's spontaneously organised. I have to learn how to preach without knowing I was going to preach. It's, yeah, it's just how you do it. And uh, so, so I went and booked a suit and tie. And the pastor looked at me and smiled. Yes, thank you, David. <laughs> so I went in my suit and tie to present the certificates. Why? Because I was in a high-context culture where the context surrounding the event is as important as the event itself. Now, probably since the 1950s, in the West, high-context events are getting fewer and fewer. You don't wear a suit and tie to church in the West, generally. Some of our guests from other cultures can't quite understand that, but they get used to us. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I, but if I'm in a high-context culture where what's surrounded is as important as the event, then I will do so where respect is important. 
So in England now, whether you're six or, six or 60, you can use Christian names when you're talking to people. Little kids will call me David. It's fine. I understand. <laughs> Actually, that's very new. When I was growing up, you didn't do that. Changed in the late 60s, early 70s. No. Okay. You didn't know that. It's a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> We had a total cultural change at that time. Trouble is, I heard it, I've heard it taught in our sort of churches is that it's a sign of your freedom in Christ. No, it's a sign of change of culture. <laughs> but other cultures are not like that. So I don't say to Africans who come to our church, mustn't call me pastor. Because I'd offend their conscience to just call me David. Now some get used to it and can't call me David. That's fine as well. Because they're, they're adapting to my culture. You understand? Yeah? Question? Yeah, not a question. You can say, my first church, everybody was missed or missed. Exactly. No, that's right, you didn't know them, that's right. Oh yeah, it's new. We're in a hospital context, you've got an older patient. Rarely do you, well, it, you, you have to speak to them first to find out do they want to be known by the person. Exactly, yeah. Or Mrs Smith. Yeah, no, I know, I get asked that now because I'm old. Okay, <laughs> I know that was a sign of getting old when doctors started saying, can, can I call you David? <laughs> At the age of 12 or 13, yeah. the school had to ask everyone to go ask their parents' first name. We didn't know their first name, so we had to go and ask. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't know. We had to ask. We didn't know the family. Because you know, you, we don't know. No, quite. <laughs> All right. So, anyway. God, God. In some cultures, there's power in knowing the name. That's true as well, yeah. But these, okay. That's high context and low context cultures. It's, is, so, is it also shocking in many cultures? Because I know much of Dave and I react to yeah. some kids call their parents by their first name. It's just like. Yeah, that's, I know, that's, that's a, a very unusual subculture, okay? Right, so, um, high-context cultures work on the following assumptions. The context is as important as the event itself. The listener is responsible for understanding communication. So, if you haven't understood what I've said, it's your fault. Okay, whereas in the... And so often in very high-context cultures, people won't ask questions of the preacher because that will imply he hasn't taught properly. So they're dishonouring him. <laughs> okay. Whereas in low context cultures, it's my job to make sure I communicate well, and if I haven't done, you're fully entitled to tell me so. 
but be careful afterwards. I might get offended. All right. Now, <laughs> it's difficult for a high context person to view life in compartments. There's no work life, home life, social life, spiritual life. There's life. The boundaries between these roles don't exist. And this underlies a great deal of what may seem baffling to low-context people. Even a common Christian expression, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, doesn't mean so much to a high-context culture. They don't separate themselves into who they are and what they do categories. That type of analytical compartmentalised thinking is low-context thinking. All right. Then there's oral and print cultures. This will be better described as those who learn best by story and learn, or those that learn best by principles, concepts and writing things down. Now, even now, as I'm teaching, these two things are in working. Some of you are learning mainly from what I say by way of illustration and story. Some of you are writing down all the principles and concepts. That's because you're different learning stuff. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's not a better. It's just a different way of learning. So, uh, Walter Ong put it, talking about even those who don't, can't read or write, without writing, the literate mind would not and could not think as it does. Not only when engaged in writing, but normally even when composing its thoughts in oral form. Oral learners learn best through stories, like to keep things intact, holistic, use intuitive reasoning, and truth is stored in remembered stories and proverbs. One of my friends, Andy McCullough, who teaches a lot in the Middle East, he learns the proverbs of the culture in order to teach truth. Because people store things in proverbs and stories. Store truth. Okay. Right. Now, Western culture, you've probably got a slightly higher proportion of um, conceptual learners, print learners, but you still have a higher proportion of oral learners in Western culture. Many, there's been studies on this, so I'm quoting them, but a large number of university graduates never lead, read a book after leaving university. Because <laughs> they're essentially not a, not a conceptual learner. But they have to read books while they're there. A good friend of mine who's a brilliant Bible teacher and pastor, but he's an oral learner, he says, I, I can't read books. It just doesn't make sense to me. Does that mean him less of a pre pastor? No. Less of a preacher? No. 
but me. I'm, an, I'm, I'm a very strong conceptual learner. I'm not an oral learner. But I'm learning to teach for oral learners. I've been learning over the last 30 years to teach for oral learners as well as for conceptual learners. So when I teach, I tell the Bible story. I then draw some principles out of that Bible story for the conceptual learners. Or I teach by using illustrations of everything. So I could have just gone through the concepts of high context culture and low context cultures, but many of you wouldn't have known that, wouldn't have understood that unless I told the story about Pakistan. Do you see? It's estimated around 70% of the world are oral learners. The problem is that at least 70% of the preachers are conceptual teachers. <laughs> so there's a bit of a mismatch. Sometimes you can train, I've known this where in other countries, you train someone to be unable to communicate with their own culture by teaching them theology in a very conceptual way. Understand? And that that's the way you should preach. So print learners use lists of points, principles and steps. At one time, for our Russian-speaking churches across that part of the world, we did a... We did the, in those days, New Frontiers training course translated into Russian and we taught all the way through it and we did five Bible schools at once, pastor's training, loads of people went out from the West to teach it. I remember one pastor saying to me, he said, David, he said, it's been great, these Bible schools, I've learnt so much, he said, but I'll tell you what, by the end of a week, I'm fed up with Englishmen and lists. <laughs> I want something that speaks to my soul. <laughs> I've often thought about that, Englishmen and lists. Okay. Print learners like to break things apart, analytical. Use formal, logical reasoning and store truth in written abstract principles. Okay. When a conceptual learner says, I know something, he or she means, I know where to look it up. I've got a note of it somewhere. It's somewhere on my hard drive. And that's what they mean by knowing it, often. For an oral learner, it doesn't do it that way. But one is not better than the other. As I say, I'm a conceptual learner. I love books. I love breaking things apart. I love analysis. But I mustn't just teach that way, because it's not how everybody learns. Whew. Okay. Contextualisation for ten minutes on contextualisation. That's ridiculous. I've done better in previous ones. I've got through and all this. In fact, when I did it online, 
I finished and Andy said, you've got another half hour, David. I thought, oh dear. So, <laughs> but contextualisation is involves thoroughly understanding the perspective of your hearers and the questions they are asking. So, you can't contextualise your teaching unless you understand the questions people are asking. Often people go to the other part of the world and answer questions that are being asked in their own culture, but the people in that culture never ask them. They're asking different questions. So, we need to learn how to do that. John Stott said, contextualised preaching is taking a is building a bridge from scripture and the culture of scripture to a person and the culture of that person. He said, many preachers build a bridge to nowhere. <laughs> that is, they understand the scriptures, but they don't understand the context to which they're addressing. Other preachers can build a bridge from nowhere. That is, they're simply commenting on current events and cultural things. He said, no, no. True contextualised preaching is understand the scriptures and the context and the culture of the scriptures and then applying that in the culture and the context of the people you're addressing. And that's what we're meant to do. So... Therefore, we have to study the worldview of those we are reaching as well as the worldview of the Bible. Contextualisation is in the Bible itself. So, if you, read the, if you read the book of Acts, which I recommend from time to time, uh, you get different preachings there. You'd think it was hardly the same preacher. When the Apostle Paul is preaching to Jews... He gives a history of the Old Testament and then says that's fulfilled in Christ. When he's preaching to pagan rural peasant community in Lystra, he does a miracle, heals a lame man, and then teaches from creation and their crops the truth of Christ. When he's preaching in Athens, he takes events in their history about when there was once a plague and a prophet said, offer these sacrifices and the plague will stop. And they asked the prophet afterwards, which god, because they have many gods, do we have to give thanks to? He said, oh, it's unknown. So they built an unknown an altar to an unknown God. So Paul used that story from their history and pagan writings, in him we live and move and have our being, as a precursor to say it's fulfilled in Christ. Wow. That's how he did it. He contextualised the gospel preaching. He quotes from their poets. He said, one of your poets has said, 
And in the original of that poem, it refers to Zeus, who was the chief of the gods in the Greek pantheon. What? Use that? When I'm preaching in Muslim countries, I remember... Well, not when I'm preaching there. But I remember there was debate in the West. Should we use the term Allah, referring to God, when we're preaching in a Muslim context? And many charismatics, because they get a bit weird on these things, said, no, we shouldn't. It's a false god. Nonsense. Arabic Jews and Christians, from even before the Quran was written, referred to God as Allah. I love being in Arab contexts and other Muslim contexts where they're worshipping Allah through Jesus Christ. And of course, what's God? In the English. It was a pagan word for God. <laughs> Bulk in Russian. Gott in German. They were pagan names. What did the New Testament do? It took thuos. The Greek pagan word for God. Didn't use Yahweh. Except the Jews. Use thuos. Do you understand? I remember being in a Muslim convert. It wasn't in the Middle East. It was in another country. But, and they were singing. And there was this wonderful song, Allah Babam. Babam means father. Of course, a Muslim wouldn't say Father God. But they had redeemed it. Allah Babam. Okay. You can read the quote about Ephesus, which is a very important one. I just have only got three minutes. It'll take three minutes to read the quote. So, so read that. Contextualization of leadership. It's very difficult to discern leadership cross-culturally because we're looking for different things. So in the West, it's get things done, who gets things done, expresses opinions. In other cultures, it's not that. It's who's respected in the culture, who's honoured in the culture. There are permissions. We, uh, we've had people in our church who just from other cultures and they sit in the church and are very good and attend one good. And then get to know them a bit and say, I'd like to invite you to preach. Then they're brilliant. But they wouldn't have put themselves forward because they're a permission-giving culture. You don't do it unless you're invited. In the Western context, and we've missed gems of teaching for quite a long time because we didn't do that quickly enough. And also in a multicultural church, you need people at the front in, from different cultures so that anyone from those cultures coming into the church say, oh, there's people like me here. 
Can we make sure we have multicultural leadership teams and so on? Very important. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll have to leave some of the rest. But just to say, in closing, for those from the UK, whilst people from Eastern cultures are on a shame, people from Africa and, and other places can be anxiety security cultures, for postmoderns in the West, law guilt is not as strong as it was. And there's certainly less of a concept of sin. Some things are seen as definitely, definitely wrong, but other issues are seen as valid choices rather than sin. It's getting increasingly difficult, therefore, to preach the classic grace to law guilt because people don't feel guilty. While guilt is a painful feeling of regret and responsibility for our actions, shame is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. And in the West now, the, gr the generation growing up are more shame-based than guilt-based. But it's not Eastern shame. It's not the shame of your family or your community. It's shame about your identity, who you are. And so even in the West now, we talk about shaming people. People get shamed on, on social media. Our young people growing up feel shamed about things like body image and those sort of things. It's horrible. And the gospel has the answer to that. Because the gospel gives your identity in Christ. And so now, teaching in a Western context, you don't teach as much the law of guilt as to shame identity. Which even things like truth about our identity in Christ, truth about being set free from being shamed, truths of God's father heart, too often a culture where fatherhood is not properly known, or if it is, it's abused. And so that's very, very important. Our culture is changing. And Andy Crouch said, we feel less guilty than ever before and more ashamed than ever before. Shame is strong and that's, and without the affirmation of belonging somewhere leading to a sense of fatherless, fatherless, fatherlessness or what is called an orphan spirit is understanding that as well. I'll conclude with a quotation from Paul. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, or a slave to all, really, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, as a Jew, to win Jews. I'm often puzzled about that. Paul was a Jew, but he was so multicultural that he had to become like a Jew. You know, I can relate that. I come from overseas. I can't, I've been preaching overseas for a long time, and I come back home and preach away, and no one says hallelujah, and... You know, 
even the Africans have got quietened down by the culture that prevails. <laughs> I thought, oh gosh, yeah, it, it's all right. I have to become an Englishman to the English. Oh dear. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win under those under the law. To those outside the law, I've become one as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, he has to be moderated a bit, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I may save some. That's another misquoted thing in British language. All things to all men. <laughs> Don't mean what Paul says. It means I'm willing to serve every culture. Paul is demonstrating that he's free, but so free that he can choose not to be free for the sake of others. He restricts his personal freedom by his missional concerns. So when I go to some cultures, I don't exercise freedoms that I exercise in the West. In Western context now, if I go to France, to a seminar in France, and lunchtime was a huge event. It wasn't any of this grab a sandwich. The tables were all laid out and all this food came and the bottles of wine were there and all that sort of thing. So, okay, the French, I've become as a Frenchman. Don't have to worry about the afternoon session that everyone's asleep for. <laughs> Just... <laughs> but then when I go to other contexts where... Lots of people who become Christians have to first be set free from alcohol. Most of our pastors in one part of the world are either, either drug addicts, alcoholics, or prisoners before. That's probably a majority of the pastors in some of the places I go to. So I'd never touch alcohol. And I had a guy who argued with me on this an English guy. So, oh, no, no, you've got to set them free. So, no. Yes, you set them free. But you are willing to submit to their culture, the Christian culture in that context, in order to win them and make progress. Do you understand? In Pakistan, I wouldn't even ask a Christian for a joint for a piece of pork. You know, sometimes I try and shock people by what you have to eat. You know, I said you can't preach the gospel until you've eaten their food. So I talk about an occasion when I ate beautiful roast rat, and English people go, <laughs> and the pastor I was with in Pakistan, who'd been over to the west. And he said to his con when I was been teaching on grace, he said, did you know, he said, when I was in England, I ate pig. Oh, they had a stronger reaction than when I say in the West, I've eaten rat. Okay, just understand. Hallelujah. Praise God. Father, in Jesus' name, help us. Help us to live in... Lord, I thank you that in some ways both these sessions have been the same, teaching us how to live in godless cultures. Lord, and yet recognising as well that even in Babylon, 
even in our culture, there's good things as well from you. And Lord, I thank you. And I pray, equip us through this. Equip us to live in post-Christendom in the West. Enable us to live in multiculturalism. Enable us to go to the nations with the gospel. Lord, I pray, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.